just want to really briefly recap what we've been talking about the last few weeks um, before we get into specifically where we're going tonight. And we've been on this biblical theme of the day of the Lord. That is all throughout scripture. There are these kind of lowercase d, days of the Lord, where God brings judgment and wrath and rescue and salvation at the same time over and over and over again. And the prophets speak about this uh, in terms of current day events, but also looking forward to this future cataclysmic, ultimate, capital D, day of the Lord, where um, God will finally usher in his kingdom for all time, really the end of human history. So Jesus, um, he uh, drew on that theme in what's called the Olivet Discourse that we've been looking at the last couple weeks. It's in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 20, 21, but we were looking at Matthew 24. And uh, he's drawing on the themes of the prophets to describe the destruction of the temple um, within the context of this hope we have and fear, uh, hope and fear in the ultimate capital D, Day of the Lord. And then uh, this week, we're going to kind of move into past the apocalyptic imagery and firmly into just like ex pure explanatory teaching of what is happening in the future without any modern day kind of contemporary relevance, just what is going to happen. So that's where we're at tonight. Um, I want to ask you guys um, real quick, just recapping the themes in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. Can you guys tell me the someone that the the fundamental disagreement, at least that's most well known, between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The resurrection. Yeah. A decent amount of voices. Yeah. So they disagreed on the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees felt like you're just dead. You die and you're dead. And that's it. And the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. And Jesus, we talked, we, we really set the context for his teaching on the Mount of Olives where he comes into Jerusalem and he goes into the temple and cleanses it and he's teaching and rebuking the religious leaders. So the Sadducees, which by the way, if you can't remember that, um, just a classic little mechanism to help you remember who doesn't believe in the resurrection and the Sadducees are sad, you see, because they don't believe in the resurrection and I did not make that up. And I despise myself for saying that. I'm actually going to go home and, I don't know, hurt myself somehow. Um, so anyways, um, but that'll help you remember that. <clears throat> um, what are we talking about? Where are we? The Sadducees. All right. So in Matthew 22, Jesus does not um, explicit really, really explicitly teach about the resurrection in the Olivet Discourse. Um, but in Matthew 22, when he's in the temple, when he's kind of pronouncing judgment upon the temple, the Sadducees, they come up and they try and catch him um, and ask him this question about, you know, if people rise from the dead, what about, you know, marriage and all that? And Jesus just absolutely rebukes them. Like, you guys, I mean, essentially his response is, you guys are idiots. You know nothing. If you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, you literally know nothing. This is the most basic fundamental belief that you should have. Uh, God is the, the God of the living and not the dead. Um, so uh, I just want to mention that because it's relevant to some of what we're going to talk about tonight. And then, of course, Jesus pronounces judgment upon the temple. He leaves the temple, goes directly to the Mount of Olives, and 
begins teaching his disciples about the destruction of the temple and the end of the age uh, and what's going to happen at the end of human history. And so some of the key points from the Olivet Discourse that relate to the, the capital D, Day of the Lord, are that, um, one, and I think we have this list of six things here, yeah. And I want you guys to see this and remember this because this is relevant to what we're talking about tonight. One, Jesus will send his angels with a, a loud trumpet call to gather the elect. This is one thing that's going to happen. He's going to come like a thief in the night. No one will know. Uh, no one knows the hour. No one knows when this is going to happen. Jesus said he himself was not aware uh, when this would happen. And um, there will be destruction and reward. Both things happening simultaneously when this day comes. Uh, the wicked will go into eternal punishment, the righteous to eternal life. Um, and then we have this idea of the elect, the people of God, receiving an inheritance that is, in Matthew 25, in his parable, the parable of the sheep and the goats, uh, he says, the kingdom prepared for them since the creation of the world. That is the inheritance for the elect. Okay, so um, I want us to remember that because really one of the goals for tonight is to give specifically an overview of Paul's teaching on this subject in the New Testament. <clears throat> we'll go to a few different passages. There's so many we could go to, but we're going to choose three to read and kind of talk about the high points from these passages. Um, but I, I want us to see that Paul's teaching is not just random. He's commenting in so many ways on Jesus' teaching in the Olivet Discourse. Okay, so this is where my little helper comes in. This is, this is where your job is tonight, Rowan. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. So this is a total, with zero preparation. Have, how long have we practiced this, Rowan? Well, we haven't practiced it at all. Okay. You know, I'm going to get a stool, too, here. I'm going to get a stool. <laughs> okay. Do you like being on stage, sweetie? Okay. Now, when you, you know, you can you sit on the chair. I'm sitting on the stool. Okay. When you talk, you got to talk right into the microphone so people can hear you, okay? Okay. All right. Oh, but don't, don't rub the microphone on the chair. That's not going to sound too great. All right. So, we've not practiced this at all, but... Rowan, what stories have you been super into lately? Paul. Okay, can you say that a little more clearly, like in your normal voice? Paul. Paul. Yeah. Yep, okay. So, Saul to, Paul. Saul to Paul. Okay, so since we're talking about Paul tonight, I thought Rowan could just share with us a little bit of Paul's story. Like, where does, <laughs> Rowan, where does, where does the story start? Okay, what did what did he do that was so bad? Um, he destroyed Christians. Oh, okay. Like what? Like what did he do? Okay. And anything else? What was the one really bad thing? Stone Stephen. Ooh, yikes. Okay. That was here. Say that into the mic. That was too bad. Why, why did he do that? Why did he do that? Because he was the bad one. Okay, okay. And then what happens? He died. Who, who, who died? Um, Stephen. Stephen died, okay. 
And then after Stephen died, what happened to Paul? Or Saul. Wait, what was his name at this point? Saul. Okay. And then what happened to Saul after Stephen died? He turned into Paul. He turned into Paul. Okay. Like, how did that happen? God told him about the Bible. Okay. Yeah. And then what happened, like... Okay, he turned nice. And then after he turned nice, he, he became a Christian, right? Yep. Okay. So after he became a Christian, what kind of things did he do? Tell people about the Bible. Okay. <laughs> what else? What else did he do? What was that? No, someone needed God's grace. He said, stop, don't harm yourself. Oh, oh, to the jailers. He said, stop, don't harm, to the jailer, stop, don't harm yourself. Yeah, that was pretty cool that he did that. Yep. You bit your tongue? Oh, my goodness. Are you serious? Are you okay? What? All right, okay. What? Do you, what, fi- I'm going to give you the last word here. What final thing do you want to say about Paul? Um, he died. He eventually died. Yeah, but, yeah. So, <laughs> that's true. Do you know, do you know what, like, tradition teaches us how Paul died? Did he die just like a normal way because he got super old? Or did he die in like a kind of unique way? Okay, how? Why? He became a Christian. Okay. And then he was eventually killed because he kept telling people about Jesus, right? That's pretty brave. It's pretty crazy how he persecuted Christians and then he became someone who got persecuted. And he heard the rules and then he kept disobeying. Yeah. Yep, that's right. You're talking to the mic. There's one rule he wasn't, oh, that's right, okay, that's pretty sweet. Hey, Rowan, I think you did a really good job explaining Paul's life. Yep, all right, hey, hey, good job. Okay, you can go down to mama now. All right, that's definitely, the cuteness factor of this message just just dropped a lot now. (laughs) Um, So, uh, yeah, she's like super, super into Paul. So I thought, can't pass that up. Um, it is amazing that the Apostle Paul was literally so opposed to the idea of Jesus' resurrection from the dead that he was, um, he was the one who stood in, uh, as an authority at the stoning of the first Christian martyr. And, and he is the one who was zealously pursuing Christians uh, to throw them in jail and persecute them. And he became uh, one who spoke about and taught about the resurrection and Jesus' return in some phenomenal ways that have have truly changed the world. It it really is just amazing how God works. So 
Tonight, I'm hoping we get an overview of Paul's teaching um, that will lead us into a place where we grow in knowledge, where we literally just understand the teaching of the day of the Lord more fully. And as that happens, we trust that we really trust the Lord. In our heart of hearts, we trust that what he says is going to happen. Um, And that trust leads to action. When we believe this is what God is going to do, he is faithful to his promise. Our lives are transformed. And so I hope that comes out of tonight in this series um, and certainly, certainly a sense of tremendous joy at the inheritance that we have as children of God. Okay, so um, let's jump right into Romans 8 here. Uh, you guys can turn to Romans 8. Um, We'll start in verse 14. And um, again, I want to say these three passages we're going through, it is more of an overview. I'm not expositing every single uh, jot and tittle, but we're getting the like, key points um, from each, pass- each passage. Lord, I pray that you would open up our hearts to your word, God, that you transform this community. Um, thank you for the ways that you've done so so many ways that you've done so. God, I pray that you would help us to live in light of what you have done and what you're going to do in the future. Lord, I pray that you would fill us with joy and confidence, Lord. Um, Lord, that our doubts would rise to the surface and be dismantled by your spirit and the truth of your word. Um, God, and that we would walk in freedom just knowing and trusting you, God, with all of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, um, So Romans 8, 14. I'm going to read through 31 here. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. And hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope... For what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray. We do not know uh, what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. 
For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Um, There are some amazing truths, transformational truths in this passage. I want to hit on three things here from this passage. One, we are heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. Probably not many of you are super excited about being an heir of your parents. You know, I, 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 I'm certainly not. Um, I, you know, being an heir of my parents means I'm the one that's going to need to throw away all their garbage when they die. <laughs> Spend hours and hours going through their house. Um, our, our kids, I don't, in our throwaway call, I don't know that they're going to be so thrilled to inherit our, like, H&M t-shirts and things like that, you know? This is a little bit of a foreign concept for many of us, not necessarily for all of us. Um, thank you, thank you, whoever said that. I, yeah, I think you were laughing a little too hard at that. I don't even see who that is over there, um, but I do appreciate it. Um, so, <laughs> Jesus, um, he is our forerunner. He is our co-heir. What he has experienced we in some ways will experience as our inheritance. It's clear from this passage, it's clear from the rest of Paul's teaching that what Jesus experienced specifically in his death and resurrection, he is going before us. That means we are going to experience as children of God the same type of resurrection from the dead into um, a different kind of body. A very different kind of body. So this leads me into the second thing here. There will be a glory revealed in us, this passage says. There's going to be some fundamental change in our bodies, in who we are. Our bodies will be redeemed, Romans 8 says. Um, Think of the apostles' experience with Jesus after the resurrection. When their eyes were opened up to who he was. Jesus had a physical body. He walked with them. He ate with them. Um, he talked with them. He fellowshiped with them. He also walked through walls and teleported and did some pretty remarkable things that he was not doing before he was living in his resurrection body. And uh, we can expect some of the same because our body will be like the body that Jesus was resurrected to. In so many ways. The third thing here, and this is the thing that is unique to this passage in the way that it's emphasized, and that is creation itself. And maybe this is maybe something that some are not aware of. Creation itself will be liberated from bondage to decay. Creation itself will experience rebirth. Um, Many of us have heard that the world will be destroyed Uh, that the heavens and the earth will be destroyed. But, and that's true in a sense, in the same way that our bodies are destroyed in death. 
in the same way that the world was destroyed in uh, Noah's flood. The world will be destroyed only to be remade and not subject to decay any longer. This is quite, quite different from the image of eternity that many believers, many Christians have, of us going away somewhere else, a very, very spiritual place, not a physical place. What the New Testament teaches is that our eternity will be in a physical place, the new heavens and the new earth. Creation remade, free from the curse, free from decay. And we see this, the Apostle Paul wrote this long before Stephen Hawking and all the famous cosmologists of today. Um, we know now the universe is slowly running out of usable energy. Uh, the universe will not always exist, left to its own devices. It would not, uh, certainly not exist in the way that it does right now for an eternal future. Um, the universe is expanding and left unchanged, it would expand to a cold, lifeless death and become a completely life-prohibiting pro place um, where even the elementary particles would change and not be able to hold together in the way they do now. The Earth itself, like our planet, is doomed to destruction as the sun will one day burn out and consume the world we live in right now, um, obliterating all potential for life in this world. Do you know there is a relatively new field of cosmology? This is totally secular, not religious in any way, shape, or form. And it actually is called eschatology, which if you've been a Christian for a while or if you've been around here the last few weeks, you know that eschatology just means the study of the last things. Well, this is a scientific and philosophical field now, eschatology, the study of the last things, because it's very clear that our universe, not just, not just the world, not just our uh, solar system or galaxy, but the universe itself will cease to exist, at least in the way we know it at some point. Um, if these cold, hard facts are the end of the discussion, life is utterly meaningless. It's utterly meaningless. Um, as one day, everything will come to nothing. And even the way I impact future generations and all that, they're all gonna be gone, they're gonna be dead and it will come to absolutely nothing and will be totally meaningless. However, that is the reality that non-believers must face, and it's difficult for, for them to be intellectually honest with that. But we have access to some pretty different information, right? That that's not the, certainly not the end of, of the discussion. Jesus rose from the dead, and he will renew all of creation. Uh, bringing it back into the way that it was meant to be before sin and the curse and before it was trapped, not by uh, the, the will of its own, but trapped in the state of decay. Um, nature itself is broken. And we can see that all around us. There's wonderful, beautiful things, just like there's wonderful, beautiful things in us, in our, our bodies, in our lives, but we are broken Nature itself is beautiful, but broken, and one day, it will not be. It will not be broken any longer. Um, I think that's a primary thing we can get from Romans 8. Okay, let's keep moving here. Um, turn to 1 Thessalonians with me, please. All right. Um, so... 
little bit of context here. Thessalonian church seems to have been experiencing some loss, some suffering, some death. And there was confusion and uncertainty over Paul. Paul started this church in Thessalonica. Um, we've got some people going there. Are you, are you uh, rebuking me because I said Thessalonica and not Thessaloniki? Well, <laughs> we'll have to talk about that later. Um, do you say Thessaloniki for like when you're talking about the ancient city in the Bible? That's how the Greeks say it? Okay, well. I'm not Greek. <laughs> we got some cats going there soon, over uh, right, right when the semester ends, so that's pretty exciting. Anyways, though, um, there was some confusion, some uncertainty about Paul's teaching, um, yet it's clear that he had previously taught them about these things. They were familiar uh, with uh, the, the, all of that discourse. Um, and... Some of them were thrown into just fear. Those who have died, oh my goodness, there's people are, we thought the, the day of the Lord was coming, like it was imminent, it was coming any moment. And that's definitely what they thought. And then people started to die. So there's this fear, oh gosh, those who are dead, are they lost? Are they, now when Jesus comes back, are they just, are they dead? Are they doomed? Uh, this is what some seem to have been thinking or at least scared about or concerned about. So start in um, verse 13 here, and I'm going to read through 511. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or, the, or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith in love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as, in fact, you are doing. Okay, what are some key points here? And you can think about this yourself as I'm listing these off. Some really key points from... Paul's teaching here in 1 Thessalonians 4. 
One is that believers can grieve death. The Thessalonians were in this place where some of their loved ones had died. Believers can grieve death with hope, tremendous hope. And those who don't believe cannot and do not have that luxury. Yet there's oftentimes truisms thrown out or, or just... There are phrases that people have learned to say in the world to comfort one another in death. But the reality is, without Christ, without a belief in the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that he is going to do the same for the children of God, that he's our forerunner, that we will rise, without that confidence and that foundation, there is no reason for hope in death. There's reason to grieve um, and, and grieve without hope. So uh, as, as believers, as children of God, I think there's a process, especially in a culture that is pseudo-Christian, we have to break out of maybe some patterns of speaking and thinking that are more aligned with our pseudo-Christian culture than the truth of the word of God. And I think this series hopefully will just help us really like break free from um, just these cliche nicisms that are, are not grounded in the word of God. Okay, so um, the second key point here is that the church will be gathered together, living and dead at the trumpet call. So remember our key points from the All of That Discourse. Like this is... It's talking about the same thing here. Using a lot of the same language, Paul is reteaching and clarifying things that he's already taught the Thessalonian church, probably as they're just familiar with Jesus' teaching on the Mount of Olives. Um, so just think about that for a moment. It, it, we'll talk about it more in a second, but the church will be gathered together, living in debt, all of us who profess Christ, all of us who are children of God, whether we're alive right now, whether we're alive when he comes back, whether we've been dead for a thousand years, we'll be gathered together at the trumpet call. Um, the third point is that we will then be with the Lord in his presence forever. Point four, the Lord's going to come like a thief in the night. Again, verbiage used in Matthew 24. He's coming like a thief in the night. Five, no one knows the time and date. If someone tells you when Jesus is coming back by showing you a nifty chart, um, I, I, I don't know. What should we do if that happens? Slap them? Uh, run. run. Yeah, no, you don't need to run. I would more laugh. Um, but we, we've all, I mean, many of us have experienced this. This was part of when I was a young believer. I, I remember, you know, people doing all these crazy charts and stuff. Jesus is coming back in the year 2000. Like, it's going to happen. Um, yeah, can we please, please not be people who do that or who buy into that stuff and who buy John Hagee books and these guys that are constantly saying, it's, it's not only is it right around the corner, but here's why. If you look at Daniel 7 and if you, like, move these things around a little bit and, you know, the Gregorian calendar and this and that. 2019, baby, it's happening. Just don't buy, that is utter nonsense. No one knows the day or the hour. 
Um, it's going to be sudden. Number six here. It's going to happen. We could be sitting at church, and boom, Jesus comes back. Um, we could be riding our bike. We could be engaging in some kind of um, willf, willful sin, and Jesus comes back. We could be sharing the gospel, and Jesus comes back, and that would be super convenient if that was the case. <laughs> Especially you're in this epic debate. Um, we could be debating eschatology, and Jesus comes back. Um, at that point, we're going to be glorified, cleansed of our sinful nature, so we won't really have the satisfaction of rubbing it in, I don't think, <laughs> if we're right. Um, there's going to be destruction. This is not just like happy times, wonderful things. This is horrifying. <clears throat> there will be destruction. Uh, and the last thing here that we see from this passage is that there's going to be wrath and salvation. Over and over again, this is how God acts. I know we don't want to always acknowledge this, and sometimes we want to explain away his wrath, but we, we can't. If we want to know the, the true God who has revealed himself specially to us through the scriptures, we know a God who is wrathful towards sin and who is filled with grace and mercy who's a gift giver, who's filled with love and compassion. But he brings judgment and salvation over and over again. And that will happen in an ultimate, eternal way when Christ returns. <clears throat> um, so we're not going to get to 1 Corinthians 15 tonight. I'm just making that decision now um, so you guys don't get too nervous. I want to just, um, yeah, talk about a couple, just a couple notes from this passage. Okay. Um, this, um, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and our left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Okay, you maybe have a vision in your mind as you are hearing that scripture. And you know, I'm, like, I'm hesitant to talk about this because our church does not have a position on some of the more debatable matters when it comes to eschatology and the end times. Like, you could be a pastor at Awaken or a home group leader and be in your mind right now, or maybe in two minutes. I really haven't said anything controversial yet, I don't think. You could want to come up and just punch me in the face because you disagree with what I'm saying. That's, that's okay. I mean, it's okay to disagree. Please don't punch me. <laughs> um... We don't have a stance on this as a church, but, um, but I, I do have some beliefs based on the passage that I feel are correct. And I'd like to share them with you and encourage you to consider them. If you have a deeply held belief 
about the way this is happening, and you've been like thinking about this and talking about this for 30 years or 20 years or 10 years or whatever, I don't want you, I really honestly do not want you to change your mind based on a few things that I'm saying on a Sunday night. You, you really should not do that. What I'm saying may cause you to look into things differently with more of an open mind. Um, this verse in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17 when I was a young Christian, it was just, man, yeah, left behind, Tim LaHaye. Like, that means that Christians are sucked up in the air, and there is this invisible kind of the first stage of the return of Christ. And, um, you know, we've talked about this a little bit, but if you read the passage at face value, that's not what it's saying. And this is the, probably the most prominent rapture theology passage in the New Testament, that those who teach the rapture kind of hang their hat on, but it's, I, I don't believe it's teaching a rapture, and here's why. In the rapture, there are two stages of the return of Christ. One is this invisible return where he raptures the church before this period of tribulation um, so that they can escape it, and then all kinds of crazy things happen for seven years, and, and then he comes back, and, and he does that so in a visible way seven years later. That, that's uh, would be a standard set of beliefs in the rapture theology world. Um, but we don't see that in this passage. We simply see believers living and dead, so it's not just those who are alive, believers living and dead being gathered together to meet the Lord in the air. This phrase that's used here in First Thessalonians is the same phrase in ancient literature that is used to talk about those who go out of a city um, to meet a returning dignitary or king who's been victorious in battle and then welcome him back into the city, victorious, like this epic, awesome parade. So for the, the Thessalonians reading this passage, it would have been pretty ridiculous to read this and think, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. People are being sucked up into the air, and then they spiritually go to heaven for this period of time, and then they come back later. They wouldn't have thought that. There is this gathering of the church living and dead with the Lord, but we don't leave. We come back. That's the direction that I think many, many Christians are confused about when Jesus comes back, and I believe this is taught consistently throughout the New Testament, Jesus comes back, he raises the dead, he changes those who are still alive, who are believers. In an instant, we just like the dead who have been raised are changed into these immortal, imperishable bodies altogether, but we don't leave. We reign with Christ in this new heavens and new earth because just like Christ is resurrecting our bodies in giving us these glorified bodies in this ultimate capital D cataclysmic end of human history day of the Lord, he's also recreating the earth. And we get to live with him here, if we can use that term, in paradise. In the garden, basically. We get to walk with the Lord for all time. Not float with him. We get to walk with him in resurrected, glorified, physical bodies. <clears throat> this is in um, 
I recognize that some here maybe see things a little bit differently, and I'd be happy, and I talked with some of you guys last week, I'd be happy to discuss this more so with you if that's the case, although I don't feel a need to change anyone's um, system. But one of the reasons I get into this is because I, in my personal experience, when I first started reading things in the book of Revelation and reading these different passages in the New Testament, I really did feel like I had to understand this complicated interpretive system, um, which is called premillennial dispensationalism. That's, you maybe have not heard that term before, but that's, that would be the theological framework of the Left Behind series and a lot, a lot of popular stuff that's out there. A lot of popular. Many, many, many wonderful Christian believers, pastors fall into this camp of premillennial dispensationalism. Um, it's a very, very complex system. And passages like this and many others, I don't know, I just felt like I can't wrap my mind around I just don't get it. And there came a point for me where I just dropped that and thought, you know, I'm just going to like, I'm just going to read the, the text. I'm just going to read it, see what it says, see if I can make sense of this. And man, it just got so much more simple, so, I, so, uh, so much more clear. And that's because I think it doesn't really make sense, in my opinion, to interpret these things in light of this framework. And what I eventually learned is that some of the ideas that believers, that many, many believers hold dearly today and assume to be not only true, but the historic teaching of the Christian church are simply not the historic teaching of the Christian church. The idea of the rapture, um, that there's a two, basically the, the idea of the rapture is that there's a two-stage return of Christ. He comes back invisibly, the church leaves the world spiritually, and then later on he returns physically. It's very complicated. But the idea of the rapture is a, is a very, very new phenomenon. Um, the, the, this was extremely obscure for the first 18, 1900 years of the church and um, was popularized in the 19th century and then in the 20th century even more so and then in the end of the 20th century even more so with just a lot of literature and books and movies and Nicolas Cage and all these different things like that. Um, and I don't know. If Nicolas Cage is behind a particular theology, I'm not saying that makes it wrong. It makes me want to believe that it's wrong. <laughs> um, just full disclosure. Um, I want Nicolas Cage theology from the National Treasure years, or the Con Air years, if you remember a Con Air. Yeah, that was good. Um, not from the Left Behind years. So, um, I hope that as we go through these passages, and ne next week we'll get into 1 Corinthians 15. Oh my goodness, 1 Corinthians 15. It is really, really difficult for me to just read 1 Corinthians 15 without just weeping at the incredible inheritance and joy that we have in store for us. 
Jesus is coming back to give us an inheritance, to walk with us forever. This is absolutely amazing. In verse 18 here, um, not in verse 18. Yeah, yeah, in verse 18 of chapter 4. Paul tells us to encourage one another with these words. And then in verse 11 of chapter 5, therefore encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you were doing. Okay, so all of us, and this is kind of my last deal here, and Christine, you can probably start making your way up here. All of us are going to experience incredible suffering in this life. Many of us already have. Many of us have experienced death of those who are so dear to us and close to us. But if we have not, we will, or those close to us will, as, as we die. Paul straight up tells us here, these words, this teaching, this teaching of the future resurrection, encourage one another with this. We should be encouraging one another in suffering that Jesus is going to come back He's going to bring all of his bride, all of his church together. That, that, think about this for a second. That means that you are going to experience in this new resurrected body meeting Jesus Christ with the Apostle Paul who wrote this. This is going to be new for him as well. You're going to experience, Paul hasn't experienced this yet. Jesus hasn't come back yet. You're going to experience it with Paul. You're going to experience it with Billy Graham. You're going to experience it with your great-grandma who was praying for you and you didn't even know it. You're going to experience it with uh, your spouse who's passed away, who knew the Lord. You're going to experience it with your child if you've lost a child who knew the Lord. You're going to experience it with your parents who knew the Lord. Jesus coming back. This will happen. This is not just us just by ourselves seeing Jesus. Together, the family of God, we will meet him face to face as one in our new, immortal, imperishable bodies in the new creation that is free from decay. Um, This is awesome. I want to use profanity right now. (laughs) I'm not going to. Um, But I want to because I don't feel, and you shouldn't either, but... I don't feel like there are words that I can think of that do justice to how incredible this reality is that we're going to enter into. Okay, so think about for a moment the things that are said at Christian funerals and it's just the things that are said over Facebook. Hey, I'm, I'm sending prayers your way. What does that even mean? I don't want you praying to me or sending prayers to me like in the mail or what, is, what does that even mean? We should not, I, we should not, and I, don't rebuke someone if they do that. Like, they're just trying to help in a crisis situation. But let's us not be people that comfort one another with things that are not true. Like, Uncle Billy is going to welcome you through the pearly gates, and man, first, first thing, you're going to get a, a round of 18 in right when you get there. Um, those kind of things, I mean, and we've all heard those kind of things over and over again. They're just ridiculous. They make light of the future hope that we have, that Jesus is going to come back. He's going to recreate this paradise for us 
to live with him, with one another, uh, in unbroken fellowship forever and ever and ever. Amen. Okay. Let's pray. Um, Lord, I pray that you would give us just a deep, deep joy at, um, Lord, our future, this inheritance we have, to walk with you and one another in unbroken fellowship in imperishable bodies, risen from the dead for all of time. God, thank you. Thank you for how much you've done to make this a reality. Lord, thank you that because of this, we can say that you work all things together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. Because ultimately, you are going to make everything right. Lord, and you are going to give us more than we deserve for eternity. Lord, you are so good. God, thank you that, um, Lord, in the future, our ailments will be gone. Our tears will be wiped away. Um, Lord, our... uh, our bad backs won't be suffering anymore. Um, Lord, the words that have wounded us from others, Lord, those wounds will be gone. The wounds that we've caused in others, Lord, those will be healed and gone for all of time. Lord, and I pray that you would give us joy, Lord, that because the fact you are coming back and you're going to make all things right and you're going to give an incredible inheritance to those who know you, Lord, that we would be motivated day after day, to proclaim the gospel to others. Lord, to live holy lives, uh, to worship you, God, to praise you, to adore you, Lord. And I pray that we would be filled with unspeakable joy, God, even in the midst of suffering. Lord, even in facing death, that we truly would not grieve as those who are ultimately hopeless, Lord. But we would rejoice, God, in tears even. Lord, that you are coming back to raise the dead. And we will together reign and live with you forever. In Jesus' name, amen.